if you could turn in your copy of Scripture uh, to Ephesians 4. We're going to be talking about unity. And I know that's a topic that, sh- that, that comes up a lot in the church, and it should come up in, a lot in the church. One of the reasons for that is because we are so prone to divisions. We're so prone uh, in, in our marriages, in our politics, in our, uh, you know, in, in our church gatherings, uh, in life. Uh, we're, we're such a divided people. We get, we get um, wrapped up in our perspectives, and so often it's, it's hard to, to see the other person's view or believe um, uh, that someone has their, be- their best interests at heart. So we, 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 we get into our corners and we, uh, we go to our different camps and there's so much division. And that's really what the book of Ephesians as a whole, the letter that Paul writes to uh, the church at Ephesus, uh, so much of it, uh, the, one of the major themes of this letter is, is that the, the Jew and the Gentile who were once divided, that they would actually come together and uh, that this would be the beautiful masterpiece that God is designing in the church. So let me read the text, and then, uh, and the, and then we'll see uh, what the Lord has to, to say to us through this uh, wonderful letter. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, uh, I've been preaching through this letter at Calvary Baptist Church, uh, so I've been spending uh, hours upon hours every week and weeks upon weeks as we've gone through chapters 1, 2, and 3, so there will, will not be sufficient time to catch you up to speed, but I trust that many of you or most of you have read Ephesians, most of you have uh, even heard sermons in Ephesians, Uh, so hopefully I can just give you a brief summary of of where we're at. And the reason why I think a summary is important, even though we're only going to be looking at three verses, the summary is important because even in the the words that are used here, there's a, a, a reason for us to look back. The very first word here in verse 1 is therefore. And so we want to look at what Paul is referring to when he, when he says therefore. What, what led to this point where he is going to make an exhortation to the church? Therefore, Paul is saying he is a prisoner in the, in the Lord. And, and, um, and so Paul is the author here, and Paul is referring to himself as a prisoner in the Lord. We also know that he is an apostle. Uh, he is a faithful, um, chosen by God to, to serve in that role. But here he's identifying himself as a prisoner. So as we look at who wrote this letter and then what preceded in this passage, I think it'll give us a little bit better understanding of, uh, of what the exhortation might be for us this morning. So Paul, he's mentioning that he is the prisoner in the Lord, and I think his mention of being a prisoner is, is for two reasons, uh, maybe three reasons, but two reasons in particular, that, that Paul is mentioning that he is a prisoner in the Lord because he, he feels that he is bound to Christ. Now, he has freedom in Christ, and that's another example of 
uh, of his liberty and his, uh, his relationship and his walk with the Lord. But here he's saying, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. And I believe that that is a strong attachment, a strong bond that, that Paul feels that he must do as the Lord commands because he's bound by that. He, 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 it's not just an obligation. It's, it's almost like he, he can't do anything else because he is so um, uh, delighted to be in, uh, in the Lord's work. But I think also literally Paul is a prisoner. Paul is a prisoner here because uh, this letter was written either when Paul was in prison in Ephesus or in Rome, and there's some debate as to where physically he might have been, but there's no debate that, that this letter was written while Paul was being bound as a prisoner. And so he, he refers to himself as a prisoner in the Lord. And so just with those two uh, identifying features of who Paul is and where he is, it helps us to see that he perceives himself to be bound to Christ, bound to the mission of God. Uh, But also, quite literally, he is suffering for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Um, So he believes that he must pursue this mission, even if it means that he must suffer. So we're talking about Paul where he says, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, uh, but, but then he says, urge you. And this is where we're going to kind of go back and, and, pre, and, and summarize verses 1 through 3, because he says, I urge you. Well, who is you? Who is he talking to? Uh, I think it's important for us to remember and keep in mind, when you and I study Scripture today, that this was not a letter written to us, but it is a, writ- a letter written for us. But who Paul had in mind was not necessarily 21st century, uh, 20, 21st century Americans. What he had in mind was first century uh, individuals in uh, the city of Ephesus. That's who he specifically had in mind. And of course, there's many implications and things that we can uh, glean from what Paul says to the church at Ephesus but we, we need to look at that audience first. And so when he says, I urge you, most specifically, he's referring to the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church at Ephesus who are seeking to be united. And, and, and he's writing this letter because sometimes that can be tricky. Sometimes even today that can be difficult. Someone of a different uh, nationality or a different language or a different generation, male and female. I mean, the, those kinds of differences can often divide us, unfortunately. Uh, but he's writing to specifically the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Ephesus, and, so, and he's going to urge them to do something. But just as a summary of verses 1 through 3, this is, who, who is you in this passage? It's you who were dead but have been made alive in Christ. Who is the you in, the, in verse 1? It is you who were foreigners, who were excluded from citizenship but have been made fellow citizens with the saints. It's you who were without hope who, ha- who now have an inheritance in Christ. It's you who were far but have been brought near and have bold access through faith 
in Christ. It's you who have been predestined, who have been chosen, who have been adopted, who have been redeemed, who have been loved, who have received salvation, who have received the Holy Spirit, who have received eternal life. See, in chapters one through three, Paul, who is on this mission for Christ and who has suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, he in those first three chapters has been boasting in the blessings and the benefits and the beauty of this new covenant people that God is forming for his own glory. And he has gone on and on in those first three chapters about how the Gentiles have a new identity as co-heirs. They're co-members of the same body. They're co-partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In short, out of two societies, God has formed one new society, an assembly of believing Jews and Gentiles. And this assembly or this church is the masterpiece or the workmanship that Paul is boasting in. Many of you might be familiar with Ephesians 2.10, where it says that we are his workmanship. And you might have heard wonderful sermons on that word where it's his, we are his poema, uh, his masterpiece, uh, you know, and, and that's wonderful. And I've, I've, I've derived great satisfaction from believing that I am made for that purpose, for those works. Uh, But this is not an individual application of that verse, of that precious verse. We are his workmanship, refers to the Jew and Gentile being brought together where divisions have been uh, uh, set aside and where the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down and the, the church is the masterpiece. We are his workmanship made in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time in advance for us to walk in them. And so Paul has uh, mentioned who we are, the blessings, the benefits, and the glory that, that God receives from the church, a church that is united, a church that... Uh, that might have differences, a church that might have distinctions, a church that might have uh, different ages and and languages and all kinds of different things that in the world might divide us, but but within the church there is love. Within the church there is unity. And so just to bring us all the way up to verse uh, chapter three then, uh, that section, chapters one through three, is all about who we are in Christ. It's our identity. And in fact, it even says that we're seated with with Christ Jesus in the heavens. And so it's where we're seated. It's where we're located. It's, 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 It's where we are in Christ. But now in chapter four, he turns a corner and he's going to talk about where we're walking. We're seated in Christ, but now we walk with Christ. And chapters four through six is all about our walk, how we put those doctrinal truths into practice, how we carry them out or walk them out in life. And I love the the beautiful prayer that Paul prays towards the end of chapter three. I won't have you turn to it necessarily, or you can have it open, but basically in eight points, Paul prays that, first of all, that we would be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And I would encourage you to meditate on this prayer when you go home today, 
Number two, he prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Number three, that you would be rooted and firmly established in love. Number four, that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. Number five, that you would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Number six, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Number seven, that you would understand God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And again, keep in mind, us, the church. You can make that application individually. I think it's fine to do that. But the primary way in which Paul was uh, applying all of these truths and, and who he was praying for was for the church. And then the eighth and final prayer that that Paul prays at the end of chapter three is that God would receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. This means, as we enter into chapter four, that God is expecting to receive glory from the church and from Christ Jesus and that the glory he is to receive will endure from the first generation all the way down to our own generation. That's why it says at the the very last verse of chapter three, that God would receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. And so with that in mind, there's one thing we must do, we are responsible for, if we are to extend or amplify that glory in our generation. This is 2,000 years has passed, and yet God is still receiving glory, and the reason why he's receiving glory is because faithful brothers and sisters, faithful churches are continuing to give God that glory through their local assemblies and through the universal church. And so there's one thing that we must do, and in light of all that we have received from God, the way we can bring him glory is when we do this one thing. And as individuals and collectively as the church, we must pay careful attention to this exhortation. Before I tell you what that exhortation is, the failure to do this, to do this one thing that Paul is going to give us, means that we will have dampened God's glory. Rather than maximizing the glory that he should receive in the church and expects to receive in the church, rather than maximizing the glory, we will have reduced his glory. Now God will be glorified, whether it be through us or some other church or some other person, some other group. But when we aren't faithful in this area, the display, the masterpiece, that workmanship is marred. It's like a beautiful uh, cathedral that has been vandalized with graffiti. Our disobedience to this one command vandalizes God's glory in and through the church. And so what is that one command that, that Paul wants to communicate after three chapters of doctrine about how we are seated in the heavens with Christ, and he's turning to a more practical side of the living out of that doctrine. Here it is. 
Here's the one exhortation. He says, walk worthy of the calling you have received. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is his first challenge, his first exhortation. The first thing he wants to communicate after all of those blessings and benefits of being in Christ, he wants us to see that we should walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, walking worthy, we'll talk about what this calling is in a minute, but, but walking worthy uh, is, is the way that Paul uh, likes to indicate the way we live out our faith. Uh, he, he refers to it as our walk. And I think a, a good illustration of this would be uh, in customer service when you have to get on a call or you go to a store and something went wrong and you get a customer service rep who seems to hate customers, <laughs> right? Have you ever had that uh, experience where either, you know, you, you call them up and this person just doesn't want to be on the phone with you. They don't care about your problem. They don't want to hear about your problem and they're just going to dismiss the problem as if it never happened. Or, or you might go in person to a store and they don't even greet you, they don't care that you're there, they, they have no regard for, for you and they're just going about their day because they are ready to clock out. And maybe they've already checked out in their mind because they're ready to go home, right? They, but when you think about it, a customer service representative, like this is someone who's supposed to represent the store and the values of the store to that customer and is supposed to serve that customer, it seems incongruent, doesn't it? It, it seems uh, disjointed. It doesn't seem right that a customer service representative would treat you with such hostility. It doesn't seem to match up with who they have been hired to be. It's, it's almost like a police officer who commits a crime or a fire uh, fighter who starts a fire. It, it just doesn't seem right. Like a soldier who betrays his fellow soldier to the enemy. That's not walking worthy of your responsibility or your job, much less walking worthy of our calling. So whatever our calling is, we should be walking worthy of it. It should match up. It should look the same. It should be the way we should live. And walking worthy means that, that, that what we believe and what we say we believe matches with how we live. And so if you love what Paul has to say in Ephesians 1 through 3 about how we are seated in the heavens with Christ, that we have been redeemed and saved and given eternal life and have this wonderful inheritance, then we need to walk worthy of that calling. Now, what is this calling? Well, this calling, another, just to kind of help us get a sense of it, let's go to another letter of Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, we ought to thank God, or, or he says, we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation 
through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a great summary of what in Ephesians he spent like, you know, all that other, you know, three chapters to get to this point where we should walk worthy of our calling. But here he's summarizing that and he's saying, look, you have been saved graciously by God. You are being sanctified in a way where you are growing up uh, through the sanctification by the Spirit and you have the truth. You believe in the truth. And he has called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, walking worthy of our calling means that we believe that Jesus is our king. He is our Lord. And we are going to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. It it matches, it reflects the way that Jesus would want us to live. And so then there's... there's, uh, several virtues that Paul relays in verses two and three that help us to walk worthy of our calling. Um, And the first one is humility, that we walk together in humility. And I I want you to notice that each of these virtues um, or or these behaviors, uh, they all are in relation to other people because he wants us to see that the, the need for us to walk in this manner and in this way is not in some isolated way, but in relationship, in fellowship with other brothers and sisters. So these have benefit for the local church because it's something that, uh, that, that, that all of us should exhibit. So walking together in humility. Now the Gentiles didn't really have any regard for humility. Um, The Greeks and the Romans didn't even have a word for humility. Some people even think that Paul made up this word that's in the original language because there was no word for being humble, being, uh, being, being, uh, having humility. But what Jesus thought of humility can be uh, demonstrated in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5 where it says, that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. As everyone should look not out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That was his attitude. That's what he did when he left the riches of, of heaven. He didn't have regard for his uh, high position, but instead he emptied himself and became in the form of a man and died on a cross willingly so that we might experience that forgiveness. So, um, so I think it's important that we understand pride is destructive. And even within the church context, sometimes we can be prideful, like my way is better than their way. Or whatever the elders suggest, I don't know, I, 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 think I, I think I know what's best. Or maybe the elders say, you know, maybe we know what's best. You know, but whatever the case may be, sometimes we get, we get this idea uh, and we stop working together because pridefully we, we've, got, uh, we've got everything figured out. Um, 
and we walk in pride rather than in humility. And if we're going to walk together in humility, then we must consider others as more important than ourselves. Um, Those who are younger than you. If If you're older, then you should consider those who are younger than you as more important. But those who are younger, you should consider those who are older than you as more important. Husbands, you should consider your wives as more important. Wives, you should consider your husbands as more important. And in humility, regard each other as more important than yourselves. Um, it's not an easy thing, but, um, and we could spend a whole sermon on all of these, which I won't, um, unless you have me back. Uh, but, we, you know, so, so there's much more that could be said about each of these is my point. Uh, and I, I, can't, I can't give you everything there is to know about humility. Um, so we just need to kind of bounce to each one as we go along, but, but recognizing that the first step that, that Paul says in walking uh, worthy of your calling is to walk together in humility. We should also walk together in gentleness. Go, go again to chapter 4, verse 2, uh, where he says, walk, uh, ur- we urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness. Uh, now, it's interesting that all of these um, behaviors, uh, these attitudes, these virtues, they show up again, like in the fruit of the Spirit. They show up all throughout Paul's letters and all throughout the New Testament, even the Old Testament, where, where this, is, this is our behavior. This is how we should walk. And again, the special application here, the primary application is in the local church, such as ours. Uh, in the church at large, but also uh, you, you, can't, you can't really work these things out with people around the world. You have to work these out in community with other brothers and sisters. So we need to walk together in gentleness. Now this word gentleness, again, you could apply it to a lot of other things. You could apply it to how you're supposed to handle an avocado, for example, like be gentle with it, or, or maybe a bouncy baby, like you want to be gentle with the baby. You don't want to be harsh or, 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 or firm. You want to be gentle. But, but again, the application is in the context of the local church. And I think there's two great examples of how to be gentle and when to be gentle in the church, I, I think at all times. But here's two cases where you might tend in your flesh or in sin, you might tend towards a lack of gentleness. But in Galatians 6.1, there's a, a situation where he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. So here is a brother or sister who is caught in sin, how do you approach that brother or sister? Do you shake your, shake your fist in their face? Do you, do you demand that they change? Do you, do, you, do you preach the law against them? Or do you approach them with a gentle spirit and preach the law and the gospel to them? Do you show them that, uh, that, that all are sinners, that we've all stumbled and, 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 and we're coming to you in love, we're coming to you with gentleness, we're coming to you with a, with a view towards helping you uh, in, in, in your battle against sin. 
So that's one example, is a brother or sister caught in sin. That, that's, that's a good example because so often we can be very harsh, we can be very judgmental, we can be very uh, angry at, at someone who stumbles, not recognizing that in our own lives we have sinned and that we must approach each person with gentleness. But there's another example given in Scripture of how we must be gentle and when we should be gentle is when a brother or sister is caught in doctrinal error. So this isn't necessarily a sin, but maybe they have strayed into an untruth. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. It's mentioned twice there. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. I would say that in both cases, whether you're speaking to someone who has been caught in sin, or whether you're speaking to someone who is straying from the truth, gentleness is almost being stated here as the means by which this brother or sister is turned and, and corrected. Um, certainly, we're not, I'm not suggesting that, that it's not God's word and it's not the gospel, but, but this is the vehicle or the conduit by which you deliver that truth to this brother or sister is in gentleness. That's the means by which you communicate that truth and communicate that exhortation for them to turn from their sin or from their, uh, their, their um, heresy. So again, walk together in humility. Walk together in gentleness. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling, those are good foundational uh, behaviors that we should begin to appropriate and, and have in our lives. Um, but then there's a third, uh, a, a third behavior, and that is that we should walk together in patience. Walk together in patience. Uh, it says, uh, once again, in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, now, there's sort of a alternative kind of of the negative uh, exhortation in Ephesians 4 verse 31 where Paul says, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Now that's a good exhortation. We shouldn't be shouting at each other. Uh, we shouldn't be angry in that way. We, we, we shouldn't have that kind of malice towards our fellow members. Uh, that's, that's good advice from Paul, but what does that have to do with patience? Well, I think patience is the opposite. And the reason why, and this is not original to me, there's many other commentators who have pointed this out, uh, based on the, the, the word that's, that Paul uses, patience is basically a compound word in the original la language of basically long time and anger. Uh, sometimes this word is tra translated long-suffering, that uh, the, those two words are put to, smashed together, anger and long time. And the meaning there is that it's kind of like if you've got a stick of dynamite. Well, that dynamite 
is explosive, it, it's, it's dangerous, but then you've got a fuse. Well, do you want a short fuse or a long fuse when you're dealing with dynamite? You, you don't want to get to that dynamite. You want to even potentially have the opportunity to snip off that fuse before it gets to the dynamite, right? So the point is, is that patience, being patient with each other, is that you have a long fuse. And, and prayerfully, and by God's grace, there's this expectation that, yeah, you know, that fuse is burning. You know, maybe there was something that somebody said. Maybe there's been some grievances and there's some things going on. But that fuse just kind of goes on and on and on and on. And prayerfully, there's an opportunity where that fuse can be cut because you have such a long fuse. If you have a short fuse, on the other hand, and there's one grievance, one thing the elders said, or one thing the deacons tried to, 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 to you know, get you to do, or, or one thing a brother or sister in the, in the church family has, has said that you just didn't like, and it just got under your skin, and you have this short fuse, so the very next time you see them, you explode at them. You start shouting. You start, you know, you, you have this malice towards them. And maybe you're thinking of someone in this church family right now that you know you, you have a short fuse with this person. You don't really have any patience. What Paul is saying is that that is a virtue that needs to be cultivated. If you're going to walk worthy, and in fact, this one has special relevance to the illustration of the customer service rep, right? Like you need to have patience. You need to be willing to hear the other brother or sister out and, and be willing to, uh, to understand that person. Slow to anger. We should walk together in patience because our relationships in the church can be very fragile. And maybe if you've come to this church recently and you came from a, a, a toxic environment, a, a, a church that was uh, just really a, a bad environment, people weren't showing patience, they, they weren't walking together in gentleness and love, then it might be hard for you to cultivate this with each other. But it's important that we do. So walk together in patience. Do you notice how all of these have to do with the local church? They have to do with our relationships with each other. I can't be patient just with myself. I mean, maybe there's some application there, but it's, it's patience with each other. The fourth um, virtue here is walk together in love. Now, I love this because in my English translation, it says bearing with one another in love. Uh, and a, another way to put it is to put up with one another in love. Now, usually I think negatively when I, when I hear that put up with. Um, but the reason why I think that's a great way of phrasing it, to put up with each other in a positive way is because, um, look at how it's used in 1 Corinthians 4.12. Paul says, we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. That's the same words. We put up with it. See, putting up with something is putting up with something that is hard. Persecution in that, in that verse is, is something that is not really welcome. You, you don't want to have to go through persecution. But putting up with one another that's the same idea, is maybe there's somebody in this fellowship 
that's really hard to be around. Maybe they're hard to really show that love that you, that, that you should have, but, but you should put up with them. And the other reason why I, I, I use that term put up with is because this is also translated in something Jesus said about his own disciples, where he said, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Jesus put up with his disciples. He walked with them for three years, uh, more or less. And, and so all of that time was, he had to put up with, and, and, the, and what he's putting up with is their shortcomings. Like none of you have arrived yet. You are not the perfect Christian. And so sometimes we have to put up with each other. We, we need to bear with one another. And the key is that it's done in love. Did Jesus love his disciples? Absolutely. And he died on the cross for their sins. This is the kind of love. This is, this is not brotherly love. This is agape love or unconditional love. It's the kind of love that's willing to sacrifice. It's the kind of love that Paul is willing to be a prisoner for the people of Ephesus in order for him to communicate these truths. So that's the kind of love that, that will enable us to bear with one another or endure uh, when someone is, is difficult or someone has been, maybe they have a lack of gentleness on their part but you can still put up with that shortcoming in their life in order to express love and and gentleness and and patience. Um, And so then uh, walking together in love, the the final uh, virtue here is walk together in unity. And I think they're building, right? I think they're kind of like steps on a ladder. I mean, the whole imagery is walking, right? So it's kind of like, first step is, is, is one thing, and, and then it's building to a point where you're walking together in unity. You need patience with each other. You need to be able to put up with one another. You need gentleness. You need these uh, qualities within the life of the church. And so ultimately, you get to this point where you are walking together in unity. Look at what, verse, what he says in verse 3. He says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That word keep can also be translated maintain or guard. And uh, we've noticed this a lot in, in our church fellowship uh, in a practical way, where we have been, uh, we have a, a, a much older building. Uh, I think it was built in the late 50s or early 60s. And so it's, it's a challenge to maintain that facility. Uh, this is a, a much newer place here, but I, I can imagine if we spoke to people who are kind of responsible for those things, you might say it's a challenge to maintain a building such as this. But you do it, right? You, and you do it because there's a practical uh, need, and there's, there's a reason why you need to have this facility. And so the effort, the money, the time, some of you have probably volunteered, some of you have given your skill or your trade, and, and you've enabled this, this facility to be put together in such a way that's conducive for our times together. Um, it takes effort. Uh, right now, our church is going through uh, what we project to be about a $70,000 building project 
Um, and it's something that uh, about two or three months ago, we weren't even anticipating. It was something that we have to do because some things were neglected in the past. And, and, and there's, there's a need for us to, uh, to address some issues that were neglected. They weren't maintained. They weren't kept in, in a way that, that, that uh, would have allowed for, for the facility to not go through the, the issues that we're going through now. So, so it's important that we keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit. And much like maintaining a building, it's important that we actually put effort into. And, and, and it says make every effort, every effort to keep or maintain the, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, the reason why that is so important, um, the reason why you, you can't just find one flaw here at Maranatha Grace and just decide, I'm out of here. I'm, uh, I'm leaving. Uh, the reason why you need to uh, persevere and endure and put up with and, 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 and walk together is because unity is God's design. Unity is what the church displays. The way God is most glorified is through the unity of the local church. The kind of unity, the kind of fellowship that you and I uh, display towards one another is that's what brings God the glory through the church. That's why Paul prayed that at the end of chapter three, that he would receive the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And the way the church displays the glory of God is through the unity that we have with each other. In that context, it was Jew and Gentile, and that was explosive. I mean, Jews could not have ever imagined that they would be worshiping side by side with Gentiles. Gentiles didn't care. <laughs> uh, it, it was kind of like their attitude towards the Jews was like the, uh, the Yankees' attitude towards the Red Sox. I mean, uh, the Red Sox, they, they just eat, breathe, and sleep trying to defeat the Yankees. But the Yankees, on the other hand, they're just like, ah, this little flea over here, you know, we're, we don't care. Um, I don't know if we have any Yankees or Red Sox fans here. I, I can't really read the room here. But uh, uh, the, the, the point is, is that the Gentiles didn't care. They were ignorant. They, 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 they had no desire to have any kind of dealings with the Jews, whereas the Jews hated the Gentiles. And so regardless of what their attitude was, Paul is saying you're coming together in one assembly, in one church, and you are, the, the, um, this was by God's design. This was God's eternal purpose, is that you would come together as one. And that is the workmanship, that is the masterpiece that God desires to display through the church. They will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So, walk together, brothers and sisters. Walk together in humility. Walk together in gentleness. Walk together in patience. Walk together in love. And walk together in unity. Make every effort to maintain that unity. And then finally, he says, through the bond of peace. Through the bond of peace. 
This is the same word as in verse 1, where he said, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. He's saying in the same way that I am bound to the purposes of God, you should be bound to each other in peace. The same way, maybe, maybe he's thinking of how he's bound to Christ, or maybe he's thinking about how he's bound to his prison guard at that moment. And, and maybe he's using this word play to, to say, in the same way that I'm bound, I'm chained, I'm physically chained to this guard, in that same way you should have this bond, not of chains, not of obligation, but of peace. There's division in the world. There's wars that, that burden us because we see what's going on in in, in far-flung places, with wars that are, that are being fought. Some of you are even experiencing wars in your own home. You're, you're experiencing division at work. This country has been ripped apart through divisions, political divisions, racial divisions, economic divisions. Everybody is warring with each other. They're, they're separate from each other. They're, they're, they're going to their corners and they're fighting their battles. And he's saying you must maintain, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So that peace that we have with God and that peace that we now have with one another is what Paul wants to communicate that we would walk worthy of the calling that we have received. So brothers and sisters, I pray that you will walk worthy of the calling you have received. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for uh, the display of your glory first and preeminently in Christ Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection the way that we can look at Christ and we can see in him the, the full display of your glory and, and, and the exact expression of your nature is found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. But Lord, for this, because of the gospel and because of what Christ did on the cross, we now desire to bring you glory through the church. Our desire is to bring you glory through our attitudes, our behaviors, our fellowship with one another. And Lord, even as we look at just these five simple virtues, I know for myself that all five of them I have failed in. But Lord, we thank you that the beauty of the cross not only gives us salvation, not only invites us into this sanctification process with the Holy Spirit, but, but Lord, you enable us to have victory in these areas. And you expect to receive glory from your church. So Lord, may the church be that accurate display of your glory for, for your sake. May this local congregation be that display 
as the people here walk in patience and gentleness and love and unity, Lord. May we all grow in these areas until you are fully glorified in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name.